Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 258, Who is the One Creator? Part 1. This episode of the Trinity's podcast is a talk I gave in Sunday school at Higher Ground Church in White House, Tennessee on March 24th, 2019. I do recommend the video version of this talk. The link is right there on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, although you should be able to follow it in this audio-only presentation as well. So my topic today is, who is the one creator? If you talk to a Sunday school kid, they will say, God created the world. But you may have heard that Jesus created the world. And you might say, well, people think this because they think Jesus is God. Yes, that's part of it. But believe it or not, they started to think that Jesus was a creator before they started saying that Jesus is the one God. And so... This week and next week, I'm going to cover what the Bible says about creation and really who is the creator, and I'm going to try to untangle some of the tangles that have been created by a lot of church history and traditional theology. And, you know, it's a practical question. I don't know about you, but I've always loved landscape photography. And when I see a really gorgeous piece of mountain scenery, I say in my heart, praise you, God, because that's part of the world that you made. That's the work of his hands. And uh, it's really an astounding, amazing world, whether you're looking at the itty-bitty level, the subcellular level, or you're looking at the view from outer space, whether you're looking at the stars or mountains or rivers. It's all a testimony to the glory of God, to the wisdom of God and the power of God. Now, if Jesus did this, I really should be thanking him too and not just God. Right, Whoever did this, we should be grateful, and it's a, just an astounding achievement. So one way I'm going to set up this talk is to use this inconsistent triad. These are just three claims such that, just according to logic, they can't all be true. So if any two of these are true, the remaining one is false. If God is the only creator and Jesus is the only creator, then it has to be false that God and Jesus are two. So if one and two are true, then three has to be false. How about take two and three? If Jesus is the only creator and God and Jesus are two, well, then one would have to be false. If Jesus is the only creator and God's different from him, then it'd be false that God's the only creator. And the other combination is, uh, let's see, one and three. If God is the only creator and God and Jesus are two, then it's false that Jesus is the only creator. And it does seem to be a doctrine of the Bible that there's only one creator, although the waters get muddied on that, as we'll see. So just as a matter of logic, unless you like to go around, you know, believing inconsistent things, and the problem with that is that if you have a set of inconsistent claims, then at least one of them has to be false. We don't want false beliefs. Okay, so which one of these three should we get rid of? We want to be self-consistent in what we think about God and creation and Jesus And there's only so many options. You have to deny one of them. You have to not believe one of them to be consistent. The first option is you could get rid of the first one and say, well, I don't think God is the only creator. Jesus is the only creator and God and Jesus are too. Well, that doesn't sound very promising. I mean, isn't it just an obvious doctrine of the whole Bible that God is the creator 
how are you going to just deny one and keep two and three? That doesn't seem like it's going to work, does it? But what they're thinking at this time, people who would say that, is that God created through his word, and they think that the word is this pre-existent divine being. And so God is the ultimate source of creation. But as far as the one who got his hands dirty, that was this word. And they started thinking this, a few people started thinking this in around the year 150. And you see different I would say, very Hellenized Christian intellectuals. So some of the elite people who had read a lot of Greek philosophy, um, they start taking this kind of view in the second half of the 100s. And they even talk about two gods and about two creators. They say, well, there's the one God, that's the big guy on the far side. And then there's also this other God, somewhat lesser, but that's the God that directly created. So this is why they might deny that God is the only creator. Of course, you're, it looks like you're going to have to deny too as well. But again, part of what they're thinking, some of these people, is that there's really two ideas of creation. So these people that think there's a second creator, which is God's word from John 1 or God's logos, what they're thinking is that there's kind of being the direct creator and then there's being the ultimate creator. And so they would say if you remove that ambiguity in the term creation, and also, if we make clear that it's the Father and the Logos we're talking about here, then you actually get three consistent claims. They would say the Father, that is the one God, is the only ultimate creator. If you're tracing back where does creation come from, this is the stopping point. It stops with him. He's the ultimate source of it. And they would say the Logos is the only next to ultimate creator. It was all done through the Logos. There's only one of those. And then Father and the Logos are two, right? Yeah, they were going around, some of them at this time, saying that there are two gods and two creators. Okay, hmm. is that what Scripture says? Is it, does it say that there's a direct creator and then like the ultimate creator? Well, let's go back to the in inconsistent triad. What if we say, I'll take one and three, but deny two? So I agree that God is the only creator. I'll agree that God and Jesus are two, but I'll deny that Jesus is the only creator. Well, I think this is the correct way to go, and this is where I'm going to go eventually, but it's going to take us till the end of next time, I think, to get all the way there. I mean, this picture of creation is very simple. I'm using the world here, right? It's not just the globe we're talking about, but it's all like all of the, the world and space and time, the whole physical universe. There's the physical universe, then there's God, and God intentionally caused it to be. He spoke and it came into existence. There wasn't any more than one being involved in that. Okay, but we're just going through the options, right? If one through three can't all be true, because they just can't by the logic of it, what if we denied that the third one and kept the first two? God is the only creator. Jesus is the only creator. And let's deny that God and Jesus are two. What about that? Is that a good idea? So then we have this kind of thing. God, that is to say Jesus. Uh, the Father, that is to say the Son. He, that one being, caused the world to exist. This is what some Christians think. This is what oneness Pentecostals think, roughly speaking. Uh, even my debate opponent in my recent debate, that's what he thinks. He thinks the Father and Son are the same being, they're the same self, the same he, and that one person caused the universe to exist. So it looks like he would be someone who would take that third view. He would say God's the only creator and the Son is the only creator. Yeah, but that's because God and the Son are the same. Okay, but this is just confusion, okay? This is a failure of reading comprehension. 
You're not supposed to think that God and Jesus are one in the same self, one in the same being. You're supposed to think they're different. How do we know that? Because they're different from each other. If you're paying attention and you're reading, you realize that Abram and Abraham, that's the same guy, right? There's only one character there. If you started thinking that Abram and Abraham are two characters, you need to reduce your number of characters by one. Same with Peter and Kephas, same with Paul and Saul. They're just two names for the same thing. God and Jesus, you know, the Father and the Son, they're not like that. There are differences between them, and nothing can be and not be the same way at the same time. So you know they're not the same one. So here are just some differences I just picked off the top of my head. God sent his only son. Jesus did not send his only son. He does not have an only son the way that God has an only son, right? God was never scared by the prospect of crucifixion. Jesus was scared. He asked to be excused from it, basically, if it's God's will. He was sweating drops of blood. Wouldn't you be scared? Hey, we're about to torture you to death. It's going to take hours and it's going to really, really hurt. and You're going to bleed a lot. Yeah, he was scared, all right, but he was also faithful. God, nothing scares God. He wasn't like, oh no, how am I going to do this? All right, so there are two differences between God and Jesus. Jesus prayed to another in submission. You know, I only want to do your will. What would you have me do? Show me what you're doing. God doesn't do that. He doesn't take directions from anybody. God doesn't pray to anybody. If you're wondering whether somebody's God and you find them praying, well, that wouldn't be God. He's the king of the hill, right? There is nobody higher to pray to. Jesus grew in wisdom, Luke tells us. He grew in stature and wisdom and favor with God and man. God didn't do that. There was no time when God was a kid. God had a lot of growing up to do. It's just a mistake to collapse God and Jesus. It doesn't make any sense. They're not supposed to be the same. Now, some Trinitarians at this point would say, well, hey, we don't collapse them. We say that they're two persons within the one God. The Father's one divine person, the Son's another divine person. Okay, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that, but the New Testament view is that they're two. It also tells you what kind of beings they are, and they're not divine persons within the Trinity. What they are is that one's a God, one's the only God, the Father, and one's a man. Right, So that's explicit. That's not my interpretation. There's one God. We know from the whole rest of the New Testament that that refers to the Father. And there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So I don't really have much more to say about that option of just denying that God and Jesus are two. It just looks like an obvious mistake of reading comprehension. Now, if someone presents you with an inconsistent triad, you can't consistently believe all three. You have to deny one. You could also deny more than one. Some people would do this. Some theologians would say, I'm going to agree that God and Jesus are two, but I'm going to deny one and two. I don't want to say that God's the only creator, that is the Father is the only creator. I don't want to say that Jesus is the only creator. I want to say that there are more creators than just those two. Sometimes they're thinking something like this. We got a more complicated scheme here. So, The late second, early third century bishop named Irenaeus, he talks about the word that's supposed to be the pre-human Jesus and the spirit. He calls them God's two hands. He said God created through his two hands, but he thinks they're beings. He thinks they're two lesser divine beings. 
So that's why the guy on the right's a bit bigger. The guy on the right's supposed to be the one true God, the one who's divine in the highest sense. There's also these lesser divine beings. He first, uh, when it's time to create, he emanates out the word and the spirit. And then it's them actually who directly creates. So in some sense, you got three creators here, although there's still just one ultimate source of creation and two direct creators. This is a type of view that you saw in the first three centuries, starting in about the second half of the 100s. But wait, there's more. If you're really Trinitarian, right, you don't like the idea that there's this one true God and there's these two lesser divine beings. No, they're all equally divine. And you don't like the idea that a couple of them were more involved in creation than others. Maybe they're all just equally involved. So medieval Catholic theologians and theologians today who like to uh, quote famous sayings, they like to say, opera trinitatis ad extra indivisa sunt. The external works of the Trinity are undivided. What does this mean? Uh, I mean, I don't think anybody really knows, but the basic idea is the Father, Son, and Spirit, when they're doing stuff relating to creation, they're always doing the same thing. It doesn't make any sense because, for instance, when Jesus was asking, you know, can I be excused, please? I don't think the Father was asking that or the Spirit were asking that because the Father and the Spirit weren't looking at crucifixion. So it doesn't make sense. So what they're all using, they're, they're all acting as one, like it's a group project, uh, or really is it just one action? There's total confusion about this. They seem to be saying both of these things, sometimes Trinitarian theologians that the three of them did it as three agents, or that the three of them did it as one agent. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I put my own relevant assumptions right on the table in plain view. What are we going to do about this mess? Again, it's a practical question. Springtime is almost upon us. You're about to see some glorious vistas as the earth wakes up from her winter slumber. Who should you praise? Whose work is this? Is it God? Is it Jesus? Is it God and Jesus? Is there also a third architect involved there somehow? Or you don't want to leave anybody out, do you? Okay, so what can we do to clarify the situation? Well, I'm going to start off telling you what I assume, and I think your assumptions here matter a lot to what kind of outcome you're going to end up with. So these are the things that I'm assuming. I assume that Scripture is inspired, so its teachings about God and Jesus are true. We don't have any better source for finding out who made the world. Although God does say in Scripture, this is in Romans 1 and in Psalm 19, that you know you can tell by examining the world that this was all put together by one maker it's all the product of one artist i assume that the old testament is the foundation for the new testament you know for new testament authors as they were writing the new testament they didn't think most of them that the new testament was scripture for them scripture was roughly what we call the old testament 
I think there was some little vagueness in the boundaries of what books were included, but definitely Genesis, Isaiah, Deuteronomy, all the books that we're going to talk about today, for them, that was God-inspired scripture. I'm going to assume, and this is unfashionable with scholars nowadays, I'm going to assume that the New Testament authors agree about creation. Now, there are some scholars who think that the writers of the first three Gospels don't think that Jesus created, but they think John says that. And they don't think that Matthew, Mark, and Luke think that Jesus created, but they think Paul thought that. Okay, maybe, but look, if we believe that God is giving divine revelation in the first century and that he's competent at it, couldn't he give them clarity and unanimity about this? Their world was small in the sense that the New Testament is not like the Old Testament. These books weren't written over like 500 years or more. These books are written roughly within a span of 50 years. So what's the chance they totally changed their doctrine of creation in that time? Plus, they knew each other, right? Paul had met the apostles, the surviving 11 or 12 apostles, and their circles are small. The time, right, it's not all over the world. It's in this one portion of the world. The time frame is small. I mean, wouldn't it make more sense that they would actually agree about creation and not have different doctrines of creation? Now, maybe I'm wrong about that, but let's see if it makes sense. I'm going to assume that you should interpret the unclear by the clear. Some passages, like no one's ever disputed what they meant, and there's just nothing fancy going on. And other passages, honestly, are disputable, and that's why there are all those disagreements. The New Testament isn't as clear as I would like it to be. I think it's clear enough, though. What's traditional is to focus on certain passages that are felt to put Jesus in a very exalted light and then interpret the other ones in terms of those. And I think that's not the humble method of trying to follow divine revelation. If we're not really sure about this one part, well, maybe we should get clear about the parts that we are certain about and then revisit that unclear part and see if we can iron it out somehow. I think we should consider the whole witness of Scripture, not just a canon within the canon. A traditional task for Christian apologists and to some extent theologians is They want to prove the deity of Christ, and they want to prove that Jesus created the world. And so they've got like a handful of five texts, and they just hammer those, and they say, you're just impervious to reason if you just deny the obvious there. And, you know, honestly, it sounds like a pretty strong case when all you read are those five texts, okay? But things, I think, appear in a different light when you consider the whole witness of Scripture. Context is really everything in interpreting Scripture and interpreting anything else. Right. Suppose you come home and um, your two young boys are playing and one says, I'm going to kill you to the other one. The context matters a lot here. Maybe they're playing, you know, I don't know, World War II or something or Star Wars or something, right? It's not a real death threat. But if you didn't know that context, you would think that something criminal and terrible had just happened. Your hair is standing straight up because you just hear one child threaten to kill the other. Then your husband comes in. Oh, no, they're playing... Uh, They're playing some kind of war game. Oh, okay. Changes the mean, right? So context makes as big a difference as anything makes. Another part of my methodology is we should be really careful finding implicit claims, hidden treasures in a text, because very often we're not finding them there. We're projecting them there. 
we've got this idea of what it really should be saying. And so, aha, see, it must say it right there. But if you don't come into it with those assumptions, you don't see it there. It's just a mistake. And we all do this. It's part of being human. We're prone to misinterpreting things. I think we should critically consider post-biblical traditions. I don't think we're the first Christians that ever existed. I don't think we're the first people that came along and tried to figure out what the Bible says about these things. You know, on the face of it, some of these people who are theorizing about how many creators there are, they're smart people. Sometimes they're Bible scholars. Sometimes they're church leaders. Sometimes they're holy people. Sometimes they're not those things, but sometimes they are. Anyway, I suggest we should listen, but also we should not stop being Protestants. As Protestants, we know that Catholic traditions have very often gone wildly astray about important things. So, for instance, mainstream Christian tradition endorsed Christian idolatry, as long as the idols are the right sort. So they could be of God, Jesus, Mary, and the saints. All right, you kiss them, you bow to them, you light candles and pray to them, and so on. I mean, Paul would have thought that was idolatry. It is idolatry. But mainstream Christianity said, yes, that is perfectly okay. They did that at the Seventh Ecumenical Council in 787. But they had already endorsed, you know, praying to Mary and saints long before that. That was going on in the two and three hundreds. Other examples, you know, belief in the papacy. That's a pretty big mistake. Jesus didn't teach that Peter was the first pope. There was no, did you know that Catholics teach that? you're the rock, I'll build my church on you. And they're like, aha, that's because Peter's the first pope, the first bishop of Rome. Now, it didn't happen. There were no bishops of Rome in the first century. So it's just, they've got this wonderful theory that makes the bishop of Rome the head Christian in the whole world. And they come to the text with it and be, lo and behold, they find it there, this precious jewel of a hidden teaching. No, but it's, it's just not there. Okay. So I don't think we want to try to start over, but I don't think we want to be uncritical either. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I focus on some clear teachings in the Bible about creation. Okay, so let's start with the clear, and I'm going to do that the whole rest of this talk this morning. I'm going to talk about what's clear in the Old Testament and what's clear in the New Testament. And next time, in light of the clear, I'm going to wade into the less clear and see how we should understand those. So you open up your Bible, hmm, never read this Bible before, pull out Gideon's Bible off of the Motel 6 nightstand, what is this? Page 1. Verse 1, chapter 1, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so it all comes from God. The heavens and the earth are just the ancient person's way of saying the whole physical world. Just looking around, you got all the stuff down here, and you got all the stuff up here. This is the earth, and this is the heavens. So the heavens is the sky, outer space, whatever's up there. 
um, and the earth, and this is the earth and whatever is under the earth. So it's just a way of saying the whole physical universe. And if you read farther in chapter one, you know, God said, let there be light. Okay. So the way he created was by commanding, you know, not commanding somebody like, Hey, you do this now, but just, you know, he wishes that it's so, and it's so he just intends that it be so. And, and things come into existence and, God, through the prophets of Israel, is not shy about taking credit for this, as he should. So, for instance, chapter 45, I made the earth and created humankind upon it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. Right, The host is the stars. A lot of ancient people assume that the stars were living beings that were like eternal I don't know if this if he's assuming it here, but anyway, uh, it's an impressive collection, right? And he put them all there. He did it with his own hands. Literally, I don't think that's what it means. It's a way of saying when he says I did it with my own hands, he's saying I did it directly. Like I didn't order this from Amazon, or I didn't have my minions do it. Or I didn't say, hey, it'd be a good idea if somebody did this and they ran out and did it. No, I did it. I did it personally. I am taking credit for that. I, so to speak, got my hands dirty. Psalm 148, it's really kind of uh, in a worshipful vein, reiterating what Genesis 1 says. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created disordering things into existence, seemingly out of nothing. Isaiah 44, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who by myself spread out the earth. Now, why is he pounding the table about doing it on his own? Presumably, a lot of the surrounding people's had creation stories where the work of creation's divvied up among the pantheon. So maybe the God of the sea made the sea. Maybe the God of the forest made the forest. Maybe the God of the mountains made the mountains. Maybe the God of the sky made the sky and so on. He's like, nope, I did it. It was all me. Now, if it later turns out that there is another creator, this is highly misleading. But anyway, he's taking credit away from any of the alleged deities of the nations. Psalm 33, this is another classic, and I think this is partly what John has in mind in John 1. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all their host by the breath of his mouth. All right, there's the host of heaven, right? The countless stars. He gathered the waters of the sea as in a bottle. He put the deeps in storehouses, right? It's like he's dividing the land from the water. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Right? So the sky, God did it. The the oceans, God did it. The earth, God did it. How did he do it? Well, he just intended that it should be. And it was. Simple picture of creation. There's God. And then there's the physical universe, and how much of it, all of it, just comes from God. It's a pretty simple picture. Now, forgive my stick figure. That's my God stick figure. <laughs> the crown is for having the ultimate authority, 
And uh, I put him that way because, you know, he's a personal being. He has knowledge and intention and will. Uh, whether he has a body, that's another question for another day, whether he in any sense has a body. Okay, so what changes in the New Testament, right? We're Christians. We believe in progressive revelation. We don't think that God revealed everything that he wanted to reveal all at once. We think some things were revealed and then some more things were revealed. Uh, so just to take an example, the resurrection of all people if it's in the Old Testament, it's kind of unclear and it's not in very many passages, but it's a crystal clear teaching in the New Testament, right? In the Old Testament, there were predictions about the Messiah coming and issuing in a new age of peace and justice, bringing the kingdom of God. But it wasn't real clear then that this was going to be in two stages, that Jesus was going to come, that the Messiah was going to come, and then he was going to go away and come back. But anyway, that's clearly what the New Testament says. So, more is being added. Okay, among the things added, is there stuff about more than one creator? Does it make a distinction between, well, there's this ultimate, furthest back creator, and then there's this next to ultimate, next to furthest back creator? Does it talk about creation by the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, either understanding them to be three agents, three personal beings, like doing a group project, or really they're just one being, right? There's just one action there. Does it do that? Well, we'll see. Some people have thought that the New Testament says those things, but let's start with what's really clear in the New Testament. And as I said, next time we'll go to what's less clear. Here's one thing that's clear. And honestly, in itself, this is really just straight up clear. It's been made unclear by human traditions, but the Father in the New Testament is supposed to be the one true God of the Old Testament. The one God, the Creator, the God of the Jews, that, that one is called the Father. They stop using the divine name in the New Testament. They don't use the personal name Yahweh because they think it's not like it's disrespectful to use it out loud. Uh, so they just call him the Lord or the Lord God or God or the Father, right? Yeah, but it's the same, it's the same character, right? Basic reading comprehension. Just two examples from the fourth gospel. Jesus answered some of his critics, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me. He of whom you, he's talking to his Jewish critics, he of whom you Jews say he is our God, though you do not know him, but I know him. If they really were intimate with God, if they were really friends of God, they would know that God was working through Jesus and that God had sent Jesus. They would recognize God's works and what Jesus did and what Jesus taught. Okay, but just in passing, he just mentions this assumption that everybody had. Yeah, when he talks about the Father, he's talking about God. There's no unclarity about that. Here's another famous passage in chapter 17. It's getting toward the end of his ministry. And Jesus prays this long prayer for what will happen after he ascends to heaven, after his resurrection. And he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So God, the Father, that is to say, is the one God of Israel. They say true God because they want to make sure you're not thinking of gods so-called, like the gods of the nations, or sometimes in the Old Testament they use the word God to refer to an idol. That's not a real God, right? You say the one true God, you know, the only one who is most properly speaking God. 
So given that, whenever the New Testament talks about creation, creation isn't really a topic in the New Testament in the sense that they don't ever sit you down and say, well, let's, let's be clear about how creation happened here. It's just in the background. It's part of Jewish theology. They just don't change it. So God as creator is mentioned a bunch of times, and it's always assumed to be the Father. For instance, Jesus says God created them male and female, and the one he's calling God there, that's the Father, right? That's not the Trinity or something. It's certainly not Jesus. So there's a bunch of passages like that and at least five authors of the New Testament. This is just the regular assumption that's just kind of spread through the whole New Testament. And again, creation wasn't an issue for them. I mean, this is something that just Look, Moses taught this a long time ago. There's nothing really to explain here about creation. God created the heavens and the earth. He did it by his word, meaning he just did it by command or intention. I'll just give you two examples of this if you want to turn to Acts 4, starting in verse 24. This is after some of the apostles have been caught and interrogated by the Jewish high council and been told to shut up and the believers get back together and they pray that God will give them strength. And this is what happens. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and everything in them, it is you who said by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers have gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah against his anointed one. So they're quoting an Old Testament scripture there that initially had to do with opposing God's chosen king. And they're saying, aha, this also predicted what's happening right now. They're still praying. For in this city, in fact, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look at their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, who also created the world. No, they didn't say that. I mean, it's just standard Jewish view here. Lord in the New Testament, as we've talked about before, can be ambiguous it can refer to Jesus and it can refer to God. When they say the one Lord, that's Jesus. When they say the one God, that's the Father. So when the writer will say the Lord Jesus Christ, well, you know the Lord is Jesus there. Sometimes, just to be clear, the writer will say the Lord God or the Lord your God. Okay, well, the sovereign Lord here, you know, the Lord who's in charge of everything because he made everything, that's obviously the Father. So the sovereign Lord and the servant, that's the Father and the Son here. There's no unclarity about that. Another interesting passage in Acts, and this is Paul talking to the pagans in Athens, Greece, and Luke gives us an account of his message, and I'm going to shorten it a little bit here just for sake of time. Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, Now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So according to Luke, Paul taught that it was God who's the one creator, 
Oh, and by the way, there's this man who will be your judge, whom God has appointed. That's this man who has been raised from the dead. And uh, the Greeks didn't like that. They thought it was crazy to say somebody raised from the dead. But that's not a problem for Paul because he believes in God and God's all powerful. And of course, God, he can heal the sick and he can raise the dead, do a lot of other things. So again, if we stick to the clear passages, it looks like you just have the same view in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The only difference is now that God is regularly called the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. I mean, God is called Father a couple times in the Old Testament, but it's not, it's not all that common. But Jesus made it a centerpiece of his teaching, you know, you were supposed to pray to our Father in heaven. This is my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Yeah, but the picture is the same. You have a super intelligent, super powerful being, and he wills that the world should be, and, and it is. And that's creation, right? When the Trinity's podcast returns, I bring up some clearly relevant but often ignored facts. Okay, but we're skipping the harder passages. Again, there are passages, if you look them up in your study Bible, to say, see, this is where it says Jesus created. So we still need to deal with those. But before we do that, I just want to end with a couple other facts that I think are helpful to keep in mind before we go to the more difficult text next week. Notice that Jesus never anywhere in the New Testament takes credit for creating or for helping to create. Now, did he just want to hide it? I mean, he did sort of keep his messiahship on the down low at first because he didn't want people to misunderstand it, you know, try to revolt and install him as king or something like that. But of course, to the disciples, you know, he's, yeah, who do you say I am? Well, we think you're the son of God, the messiah. Right. You guys get it. Now, I mean, he could have told them behind closed doors, hey, guess, guess what, guys? I created the world. Or, well, I, I was involved anyhow. God did it through me. So I've been around since before Adam. But he doesn't do this. He doesn't do it after the resurrection. He doesn't do it in Revelation, in his exalted state. Every clear New Testament passage about the Genesis creation seems to just assume that God did it. We, we just looked at a few of those. But again, that's just a background assumption. They're Jews. Uh, this is the part that I'll have to argue for next week. I claim that every alleged Jesus created the world passage admits of a plausible alternative interpretation, that there's a way that you can read it in the way that a first century Christian would read it, not just that you're avoiding the conclusion that you just don't like the idea that Jesus created, but no, there's a sensible way where it can be read otherwise as not saying that Jesus created. This is where some of our theological opponents get furious, but honestly, a lot of them haven't really tried hard. They got this handful of proof texts, hey, Jesus created, so he must be God. So they never really cared to investigate whether they could be understood in a different sense as not saying that Jesus created. 
Another complicating factor is that Paul talks about a new creation. He talks about humanity being a new creation, you being a new creation. We need to look into that because given that, there could be talk of creation in the New Testament that doesn't have to do with the Genesis creation. And finally, there are two historical facts I think that it's important to keep in mind. The earliest creeds that we have, kind of regular, written down, regularly used creeds, they don't ever mention multiple creators or this idea of direct creation versus indirect. They usually start off like the Apostles' Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, something like that. Sometimes they just say we believe in one God, the Almighty, you know, the one who's in control of everything, and I think that just assumes creation. But very often they just say, hey, there's one God, the Father, and that's the creator. They started using creeds in the 100s as the 100s went on because they wanted to make sure that you were on the same page, that you weren't a Gnostic or something. So we have these early baptismal creeds, these very simple little you know, six-line things that you could be asked about when you're baptized. Uh, and then we have some statements by early writers where they say, look, this is the faith of the universal church. And, you know, usually it starts off with, yeah, there's one God, the Father. Oh, and also there's the Son of God, born under Pontius Pilate, crucified, risen from the dead, and so on. Okay, if it was just a universal early Christian teaching, hey, Paul says that Jesus created, John says that Jesus created, you'd expect to see that pretty early in the creeds, and you don't. And a related fact is that this Logos theory that God had to create through his word, the word mentioned in John 1. And so really there's two creators, a direct and an indirect creator, the indirect one being God. When theologians started to say these things in about the second half of the 100s, they were controversial. They were controversial for a long time. You have people pushing back, and history calls them monarchians. So monarchy is the rule of one, right? And they say, no, we don't believe in two gods. We don't believe in two creators. There's one, there's one God, the Father, and he's also the one creator. So don't tell me there's two gods and two creators. We uphold the monarchy. That was their slogan. So that's why they're called monarchians. And this was not some fringe, you know, wingnut groups. They weren't law-keeping Jewish Christians. They weren't Gnostics. No, right in the mainstream of Christianity, some bishops in Rome held to this view in the late 100s, the early 200s. You see bishops getting disciplined for this in the year 269, 270. You even see people in the 300s, bishops who reject this Logos theory, that the Logos is this second divine being and that God had to create indirectly through the Logos, through the Word. Now look, if it was just an obvious claim being made by Paul, and everybody's reading Paul's letters, and everybody loves the fourth gospel by the end of the 100s. Why was there a controversy? Some of the people who love the Logos theory and who think it's the, the greatest thing since sliced bread, they tell us that the unlearned Christians, Joe Sixpack and Mary Sixth Grade Education, all these uneducated dopes keep saying, what, where'd you get these two creators? Where'd you get these two gods? We uphold the monarchy of the Father. Right? They're telling you that most Christians didn't hold to their theory. Now, that's surprising if it's just an obvious teaching of some parts of the New Testament. 
So next time we'll dig into some less clear passages. Bring your Bibles. See if what I'm saying will make sense to you next time. Uh, We'll look at these passages which allegedly teach that Jesus was the creator or the next furthest back creator or something like that. Thank you. This week's thinking music has been the track Burning the Microwaves by Spinmeister. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. Next week, in light of all of the context that we've discussed, I give my interpretations of the passages which are traditionally read as teaching that the pre-human Jesus, or at any rate, the Word, created the world. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.